I'm, I'm ready when you guys is. I'm ready to go. So you do accept this mission. Well, that was easier than I thought. I didn't even have to say anything. All right. Welcome to the Western Movie Podcast, everybody. I accept what? What did I accept? Uh, the accept, mission to put up with uh, me. Um, I don't know what you're talking about. Good. Um, so, we are now in the um, better half of the Mission Impossible franchise. Um, there are fireworks going off outside my house. Um, I don't like it. It's ruining I my thing. We, okay. I can't hear. Oh, okay, good. Then, well, I can. Paranoia. Um, okay, so there is probably no news. Yeah, there's probably no news. I'm looking. I'm looking through the news right now, and uh, good God. Um. Oh my gosh! There's nothing. There's nothing it's like in my face. Slow before Comic Con, and then Comic Con happened, and now it's slow again. Yeah. Yeah. So like, yeah. Okay. There's nothing. It's just football and wrestling and nothing. Movies just decided to remain silent for now. Um. Let's see. Pretty much. So there was one thing that. Jeez, did not expect that. There's one thing that did come out. Um, that was a Wall Street Journal article or report. Would stop? Things stop falling. Okay. Um, about how Jason Statham and The Rock and Vin Diesel are afraid to lose a fight in a fake movie. So how do you feel about that, Chris? What, I don't what do like you it. Find like, okay, so no, like, listen. So, yeah. like, we. So, yeah, I went to see uh, Hobbs and Shaw, right? Um, mm-hmm. And like, it's nuts. It's crazy. And like, when I saw, like, I really didn't. I'm gonna be honest. I really didn't know about it until. The article came out. When the article came out, I started thinking. I started uh, thinking, like, my God, they're right. Like, none of these fights end with a satisfying conclusion. They just end in some crazy bullcrap. And it's... Like, oh, God. So... It's, oh, man. So, and I noticed it in Hobbs and Shaw, too. And, like, man, how did these guys get big in the first place? Um, so, like, well, I guess I, I know why. I know how, but, um, it's just, it just bothers me. From a storytelling perspective, if you're going to play a babyface, you got to learn to take a beating. These guys play the babyfaces or the oh, heroes. Wait, wait, I'm sorry. Well, let me, let me put it this way. Like, are you saying that to be a good actor in an action movie, you have to be willing to take a beating? No! Fight? The 80s proved that. I bet, I bet, I bet Chris thinks he or, could beat William Neeson. Uh, or are you saying that, that they should be willing, the characters should be willing to take beatings? Yes! Indiana oh, Jones! Okay, so what, John Wick! So you, Mad you Max! Said that that was, 
you said that that was the 80s, correct? That that was the 80s idea? Okay, I'm about that's to be proven wrong, so get ready, everyone. <laughs> you, you, you just highlighted why Die Hard became the biggest hit in the world when it did. Because it became a hit right at the, I guess, lull of the Schwarzenegger, Stallone uh, kind of movies. Those kind of big action, dumb movies, Commando, all that. Those were kind of getting on people's nerves a little bit about the heroes just being able to do whatever they wanted. In Die Hard, though, I know you haven't seen it, but one of the best parts about it is that Bruce Willis is just an everyday dude. He's just a guy who came home, not came home, but came to visit his wife at her work for a party. He's taking off his shoes just to like get dressed and get like calm down and stuff. And then all of a sudden, the terrorists come and he's like walking around the building with no shoes. He gets hurt. He walks on glass. He gets shot. He... He is bleeding and bloody by the end of the film. He's limping. Like, he can't kick anyone's ass. The only thing he's got on his belt is like a gun. So that really changed people's minds and perspective. That's why speed happened. That's why point break happened. That's why more realism. That's why Last Action Hero is the way that it is. When they go to that New York, that's the New York of what action movies would be until Born, until like, they went crazy again and they got all kooky. And then 9-11 happened and Born happened and things got serious until Marvel took it over. So, like... The, I, I see what you're saying because the Fast and Furious movies are 80s action movies. That's what they are. Yeah. So you have to have that mentality because it's totally about the muscles and the oil and how you look and how you present yourself. But this stuff has been going back. This stuff has been happening all the way since like theater. Like, like when, a, uh, when a celebrity would become a diva, they would have rules and sets for so that other people would never upstage them. They would never want to be upstaged. They'd never want to look a certain way. It's just, it's, their image is now taking over their ego. So there would be people who would like, comedians who would like tell jokes and stuff, and then a new young comedian would show up, and then that comedian would like tell them not to do these jokes. Or they would try, if you, you can see stuff in the 60s and 70s on talk shows for like Carson where comedians would like go at each other, trying to make each other look bad because they're on Carson. It's just, it, it, it's it's your ego writing your image and if these movies were a little bit more grounded like john wick like john wick may be amazing and can do anything but he still looks battered and beaten by the end of those movies he's still emotionally grieving he can still be hurt emotionally and wounded that way so there's a little bit of an edge to it these movies they started that way and then they became something else entirely entertaining cartoonish uh live action superhero stuff so they they have to imagine themselves that way for these scenes to make sense. Like, that's the problem. They have to be like, my guy would never lose. He would survive a tank flying my girlfriend grab with a car. Like, they have to believe that they can do that stuff. So they have to tell themselves that they would never lose. Like, that's that's crazy. On top of all the stuff that they've done, on top of Jason Statham being the transporter and all this other stuff, like, the Rock has been in wrestling. Like that's totally stuff that they do in wrestling, as you've said before. But th- this is just the problem with having an ego in Hollywood and being a diva. They're just divas, but we love them because they garnered the attitude that allowed them to be able to pretend this hard. And that, that's the problem. They're like pretending too hard. Yeah. Oh God. Like I even watched Fate of the Furious before I went to see Hobbs and Shaw to see where everybody was at before Hobbs and Shaw. And even in that movie, I'm like, okay, you're probably going to have to talk me off a cliff here. Okay, get ready, right? Um, 
this franchise misses Paul Walker. Yes. Um. And what what do you think is? Do you think that's a problem? I think, think it's that a problem. The too much. Because I I okay so. I I agree. I, let me, let, there's two things that can go with that statement. Either a you're saying that Paul Walker's loss is a loss to the series so much so that like it's evident you can feel it no matter what they do to try and fix it or be themselves. Paul Walker's loss is felt. And to be honest, yes, it's because Paul Walker was a normal looking dude surrounded by crazy people. <laughs> he was the serious guy. He was the one when the movie needed him to go to prison and, like, go undercover and find this guy in the sixth movie. It's a serious thing. He's not joking around. He'll quit from time to time, but mostly it's, like, the movie running scared. Paul Walker is the guy who's always scared, always freaking out, always trying to do it, but still overcoming it because he's the normal guy among Vin Diesel and The Rock and all these other people. And, like, he was the thing that grounded a lot of the insanity because he he looked like a normal dude. But... Now that he's gone, and you've got The Rock and Statham and Michelle Rodriguez and and Gina Carano and like Tyrese and all these all these people who are like bulked up and look muscular and just it it lost something with it. Yes, he had he offered a lot of humanity and normalcy through his image and himself. Like he he wasn't wooden anymore. He felt like he was just playing himself with his friends and having a good time. And then yeah, he died, and his friends miss him. And they wanted to tell a story that was about. Dom and and try to drive Vin Diesel's acting because I think that was the thing. He's like, if Vin Diesel is the attitude, then Paul Walker is the acting. And now Paul Walker's gone and I have to carry both. And I don't think it was an image thing where he wanted to take over this whole movie and be about him and his baby and stuff. I just think you thought he had to carry both of those weights. And I hope that changes in the next one. I hope he just kind of like goes back to attitude and lets other people will do what they have to do but like that's why and and i think there was something special about paul walker too because scott eastwood doesn't really add anything to the way that paul walker did maybe it's because i saw movies like running scared and when he has to like raise his baby in the middle of katrina in an empty hospital like i think he was a good actor as for the movies missing him i think the movies i think the movies don't mourn him i don't think they are trying to say anything about the reality of the situation, I think they're trying to avoid it and make it about Dom. Do I think it's a movie made by people who missed Paul Walker? Absolutely. Absolutely. It was like people coming home to camp and one of the kids died of leukemia. It's just you can't... Who wants to make arts and crafts now? It's just... I think it was too soon. I think... I think... I, I think Fast Eight was made too soon. It's a good movie, and I like it. It's a good James Bond movie, actually, more than anything. But it it, it was made by people who miss Paul, Paul Walker more than anything else. I think that could be felt, for sure. Yeah, I just think, like... Because I tried rewatching watching uh, Furious 7, which I think may be my favorite Fast and Furious movie. I have to rewatch five to to confirm this, but like, um, I just like, it's just a hum. There was a humanity to Paul Walker's character that I could, like, that kept this crazy series grounded through its changes. 
And, like, and then I saw Fate of the Furious, and I'm just like, oh boy, they're going to go off the rails now. It's, go, it's over. And then now, for the ninth movie, they're bringing in John Cena. So, <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Um, hopefully he's a little I, more... I think they'll be fine. I, Justin Lin's coming back. Uh, but, I, there's just something about James Wan's style and his approach to Furious 7 that I like more than Justin Lin. Don't get me wrong, Justin Lin understands this, probably understands this franchise better than anybody at this point, because he's directed... Didn't he direct, didn't he, uh, direct, um, the one after... Tokyo Drift. I think he did. So to make he directed, he directed three, four, five, and six. Well, he directed Tokyo Drift. Yes. Yes. Okay. So he's it's directed four movies, going on five. He understands this franchise better than anybody. Um, but I guess, I guess he's I just Christopher McQuarrie. Wait, say what now? He's, he is their Christopher McQuarrie. Uh, yep, mm-hmm. I'd agree with that. Um, but it just... For me, it's like... I just like James Wan's approach to it better. It looked more cinematic and, like, more... I think he embraced the craziness more than the, than the one before it. And I don't think Fast Five was... That cra- was as crazy as it's getting yet. Again, I have to no, see Fast Five first. More charming. I, I think you, there are two things that get elevated with the series. There's the action, and then there's the uh, characters and the attitude. Um, so the first one, the, the third movie is basically the same thing as the first one, where they remake an old movie but with fast cars. Tokyo Drift is the Karate Kid, but with fast cars. The fourth movie is like, it's a super serious version of the first movie. Everyone's acting real hard, and the CGI sucks. And, like, Justin Lin was like, okay, I'm sorry, guys. Look, can I make another one? And they said, sure. It made money. You can make a fifth movie. And he goes, okay, guys, I I can't do with this somber stuff, and I can't remake an old movie. If I'm going to remake anything let me remake something recent that people love and is fun. And they're like, what? He goes, let me make a, a, a heist movie. Let me make a, a Italian job. Let me make an Ocean's Eleven. And they said, sure. And he added charm to these characters. He didn't like, he didn't do much other than just make it a heist movie. But he didn't make it just about cars. He actually added a plot to it that was outside of character. Which, I mean, that's what the first movie is. The second movie is just a like, bad action movie. But then he started to get better in his action set pieces. I think a lot of the like set pieces in 6 are really good. But you're right. James Wan boosted the insanity in 7. My favorite set piece is his because of the insanity of it. They jump out of airplanes like people who are jumping up like buses. It's, it's great. I love it. But in terms of just like an entertaining action movie, the charm of 5 is it's... It's un- it's unbelievable. We care about these people as well as the insanity of everything. Do I think the insanity needed to be brought up with James Wan- Wan's movie? Sure, because it brought it makes Hobbs and Shaw a little bit more palatable. But I I don't necessarily 
know if five is my favorite anymore. I think six might be. Oh, I can't make that jump. I never really liked six anyway. I, dude, six has a great like fight in the middle of it uh, at the mall when they're like fighting in the escalators and stuff like that. Um, I like the take jump. I, I think it's a better version of four. I think it's driven by character just as much as anything else. Like you feel for the side characters as well, like Han and Giselle and everything. I think all of that works as a whole movie, but I, I just think the best time is five. Well, yeah. But him coming back is going to be interesting because he's grown with the series. He, Justin Lin is a better director because he changed and evolved with this series and became it became amazing because of him. It is amazing because of him. There are other elements that, like, once you lose them, they suck. Paul Walker leaving, you lose elements to it. Um, but... It is what it is because of that guy. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Just. Yeah. I don't like. Oh, Jesus. I don't like the vanity. Get over yourself. You know? Just like. It's only, I guarantee you it's only because we know it. But that vanity drives everything. All the action movies that you love are driven by that. I guarantee you RDJ has just like stuff like this all over the MCU. And, stu- and rules and stuff about how he was willing to allow himself to look by at least Iron Man 3. I think the Russo brothers helped challenge the character, but I, I also think there are things that he was not willing to let happen, like, especially by Endgame. He's like, I'm going to die. I want to die this way. I'm not going to die this way. Uh, you can't do this to me. I'm not going to go out this way. Like, by well, that point, did you read the article about like him basically saying he didn't like the fact that they wanted him to say, I am Iron Man at the end? Yeah. Yeah. What did he do? He trusted them in the moment. He, he trusted them in that moment that that was a take or something that would just... It, it was just one line. It was. It didn't like define the character or anything or hurt his image. It was just an acting choice in the moment that they could take away. But I guarantee you when it comes to like... set, like well, I guarantee you when it came to Civil War, they him and Chris Evans probably negotiated how many hits and stuff like that they would give each other. How that thing was going to end. Guarantee you. Guarantee you. Interesting. Mm. Alright, agree to disagree. We'll probably never know. We will never know. But, my gut is, like, no, here's my thing. They handled that better. Sure, we can talk about, like, it's probably happening everywhere else. I'm telling you, if that really did happen, then Chris Evans and RDJ handled that better than Vin Diesel and The Rock did because Vin Diesel's out here starting Twitter fights with Vin, Di- with, with Vin Diesel. And then you got, like, Tyrese Gibson, who wants, who probably wants out, but is only in it for the money. He's only, like, crapping on everybody. And just He's still in these movies for some reason. Money. Because that's why everybody's any, in anything anymore. And, like... It's just, for me, it's like, I think what bothers me more is that the vanity and the diva-ness is so out there. Like, they're out, like, taking jabs at each other in interviews, and then it's translated on screen. And it's just, it's just the, way they, the way they're doing it. The way they're doing it between them and the Fast and Furious franchise is just so unprofessional to me, you know? Well, well, 
Well, first of all, I, I absolutely agree with you on a, on a couple of points. A, I don't like to know uh, the diva nature of people. I find it sometimes interesting, but when you actually can see it in the thing you're watching, it does suck, and it does like take you out of it a little bit. I agree. When you don't know about it, who cares? Like, it, right. I've watched enough films in Hollywood in general. Like, I've spanned the, the distance of Hollywood right now so far out that I'm like, this has existed forever, even before movies when it was just theater, like, in vaudeville. Like, this has been around forever, but the I mean, this we is, don't know this about is, it, honestly, it's great. This is, Chris, you want to hear an honest truth here, and this is kind of, you know, my, my Renaissance man style learning. Here, oh boy. This here isn't just something that's been happening for the last even hundred years. This is something that's been happening for thousands of years. So what? This is something that, oh yeah, like, so what? This is I don't like, have to like it's it. It's not even just tragedy. Well, it's not Some even just in theater. Or, like, like, I'm sorry. Like, they uh, even in in Rome, people were like, "Yeah, I'm better than you because I've acted in King Lear this many more times than you, or whatever." You know what I mean? I I I, I just want to make it clear, Chris, that I'm not disagreeing with you in any real way. I'm not saying that what you're saying isn't crappy. The fact that we know this stuff, especially when they are going on Twitter and giving giving each other crap in the interviews like it, it, it's a lot of things hey they've been doing this series since 2001 they've been doing this for almost two decades like there's some stuff that's rising to the top there's 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 tensions there's problems things are getting weird which is why i like that justin lim is coming back i'm hoping he's going to come back and be like hey guys get your crap together we got a movie to make like i want him to bring everyone back together uh, so things are getting weird and it's spilling out into social media. That totally sucks. When you don't know about it, I don't care. Like, I'm sure that stuff exists in everything. I just don't want to hear about it because, yeah, it breaks the world of what you're watching. Absolutely. But So when I heard about it and there were like a bunch of articles, I'm like, yeah, of course, totally. That's why Schwarzenegger and Stallone weren't in a movie until they were totally super old. That's why De Niro and Pacino like, saved the time that they were going to be on screaming together until they really, really felt something that would make them equally feel like they were a part of the story, and that's what he did. And then they would just totally squander it in other movies like Righteous Kill. But I, it's always been the thing. I, When I see that it's obvious, I just try to ignore it as best I can. And yeah, they're totally making it hard. But that article is making it worse. That article should have just never been written. It should have just been, like, we shouldn't fuel this fire. Like, who cares? I know it's media and it's news and it's T- and it's TMZ and stuff like that. And we're talking about it, sure. But, like, I really wish that article hadn't been written. Like, just make it a thing that shows up on a blip somewhere. Not a whole article about how it's going down. It's just going to accelerate tensions on a set that is already deviating people so that there's different movies. Someone someone died. The main director isn't back. Like, there are tensions. Do you want to yep. see these movies fail? Then yeah, you're going to write the article. But someone like me is like, these movies are fun, and I'd like to keep them going to a certain extent. But like, what other movie is going to allow Ildris Elba to be that kind of character and do that kind of performance outside of Marvel? Nothing. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that, that's just that's life, man. You got to just take take your hits where you can get them, and accept that some people are just a piece of shit. <laughs> Explicit, oh, yeah, yeah. and we're only 24 minutes in. Yeah. All right. I, I, I'm i just saying, I agree with what you're saying, and I think it sucks that you're feeling that right now, especially since you saw the movie and you can see it in the movie. But to me, that's much more of the article's fault than it is the system in this situation. But yes, it does suck that that's a thing that exists in any sort of form of media, whether it's 
theater, movies, music, or even more particular, politics. So it's anything image-based. Now, yeah. like, FDR would never have been president at a time of television. We never would have elected a president in a wheelchair. It's just the way it is. Image matters. Nixon lost in a debate because it was the first debate on television to, to Kennedy. And it's because he was sweating the whole time. And Kennedy looked cool because he was Kennedy. But, like, because everyone's like, why is Nixon sweating? He lost the election. Image matters. But yeah, I, um... Which face, I bet there are people that are, like, fueling that fire, too, to those stars, like, assistants and agents and people who are like, yeah, dude, you're the best. You deserve to not lose on screen. What are you talking about, man? You're in the Furious movies. I guarantee you there are people that are just stoking that fire, too. More, yeah. more, I would guess, on Vin Diesel's side than anyone else. Probably. Yeah, I, like I said, I totally, like, um, actually, yeah, when I saw Hobbs and Shaw, I'm like, uh, I, I read the article the day before I went to see Hobbs and Shaw, and then, like, and then I found out when I got to the theater that David Leach directed it, I'm like, okay, no matter what happens here, I respect David Leach even more, <laughs> to balance out that ego, and, like, yeah, he... He did, he did, I think he did well. Um, it just made me want to see Chad Stahelski outside of the context of a John Wick movie even more. Because I've been feeling that. I'm like, dude, the moment, I really want to see what he does outside of John Wick. I really want to see what Chad Stahelski does outside of John Wick. But, um, yeah. I, I thought it was a okay time. Like, I got to see Roman Reigns spear someone. Spoiler. Um... Nice. But yeah, it was, it was fine, I guess. It was over the top and crazy, and they're going to space. Um, <laughs> yeah. Are they going to? Space? I gonna, didn't know that. Here's my Thanks here's my prediction for Fast and Furious. Here's my prediction. They are going to bring. Wait, no, are they going to space? No. Here's the thing. Hear me out. Hmm. John Cena. Yes or no? John Cena. They're gonna, Universal owns um, the rights to Fast and Furious. So here's what's going to happen. John Cena's going to come in and play the Invisible Man in a Fast and Furious movie. Yeah, that is not what I asked. <laughs> Are they going to space? Yeah, they're going to space. Okay, cool. So I want to know. I want to know that small weather. No, it's not a spoiler. I'm just predicting stuff. That's all I wanted to know. Thank oh. you. Uh, Idris Elba is Black yes, Superman. What was the other um, thing you were suggesting? Uh, John Cena is going to be the Invisible Man in Fast and Furious 9. Why not? I said he is going to be. Oh, like he is. He's going to be a guy that can turn invisible. Yes. Because Universal oh, okay. owns... The monster movie franchise, the <laughs> uh, monster movie, uh, and then the uh, the um, Fast and Furious. So they cross the two over. And since John Cena's thing is okay. you can't see me, then you can make that. You can make him the Invisible Man. So would you? How? What would you consider? If you would consider that metaphor something that was here with um, Ildris Elba's character, what would you think would be the closest monster to him? Oh shoot! The thing, uh, the monster Frankenstein. Yeah, 
that is that, that's um okay yeah okay no that makes sense because he was like after crap happened to him they put like metal and stuff in him right sure yeah um yeah okay that makes sense so yeah they're just gonna import their monster movie um franchise into Fast and Furious and pray that works um why not exactly why not at this point what else are they gonna do go to space um better they better go to space um so yeah let's talk about a good action movie franchise um sure mission impossible ghost protocol mm-hmm. oh boy Woo! that was a good time so ah Sorry. When was the last time you saw this one? Oh boy, um, I caught it on FX. I think at my grandparents' house. No, I'm thinking of the first time I saw it. Okay, the last time I saw it, um, I honestly can't remember, but I remember the movie well enough going in. Like I honestly couldn't tell you when I last saw it. So, I really like this one. I, I think this might be... I've always heard that this is what people say when they say it's the best in the series. And I've always liked one. And I think watching it now, this is a better movie. It may not be my personal favorite, but this is better than one, I think. Ooh, really? I admit that. Hmm. So, I did some research. Ooh, research. Uh, on this So, I, as we've been doing these, I've been finding it more and more interesting to watch Tom Cruise evolve with these movies. So, it's sort of like how Rocky is, as a series, is basically the evolution of the ego of Sylvester Stallone. Uh this is the evolution of, of Tom Cruise's career, like, just pinpointed by these movies. So, when the third movie happened, it was a year after he had jumped on the couch and married Katie Holmes. J.J. <laughs> Abrams was hired to fix the image of Tom Cruise at that time. That's why the first scene in the movie is him being super charming in a party. Remember how charming Tom Cruise is? Now a guy who jumps on the couch and calls Matt Lauer glib on TV? Tom Cruise, guys. <laughs> Everything before that had been a massive hit before Mission Impossible 3. He'd already done between that and 2. I think the, the, the space between Mission Impossible 1 and Mission Impossible 2, he puts the best output of his career. The Mission Impossible 2 to Mission Impossible 3, he has some of his best hits, including a couple Spielbergs. But then he jumps off the couch. People realize he's a Scientologist, marries Katie Holmes, calls back Lauer Glib, and he makes this movie. Now, this movie makes a decent amount of money, but it isn't a huge, massive hit for him. And he decides to do something different. He decides to do two serious movies in a row. He does Lines for Lands with Meryl Streep, and then he does um, Valkyrie with Brian Singer and Christopher McGuire. 
I actually, I didn't actually mind that movie. Both of those movies don't do well because they're boring movies, but he's good in them. The next thing he does, Tropic Thunder. Oh, man, I forgot he was in that. Oh. One of the best performances of his career. Bar none. He does everything in it. He has a great monologue. He's super funny. He dances. Like, he does everything. He's perfect. So, and it's it just shows that he's willing to be in on the joke. Tom Cruise is crazy. Well, here's him playing crazy. He's just being crazy, guys. He's in on the joke, sure. And then he does a movie called Night and Day with Cameron Diaz. Anybody remember that? Oh, yeah, that. I only saw commercials for that. that mm. Right after that, he does this. So, this is where things start to get interesting. I think Night and Day is the outlier. That's the most important one. Night and Day is a movie about Cameron Diaz going on vacation in Europe, meeting Tom Cruise, finding out he's a spy, and they fall in love, and action, romantic, comedy, antics happen. He is super mysterious, because you don't know whether you can trust him or not, but he is also supposed to be a sex symbol, and charming, and funny. He has some funny moments in it. It's, it's a so-so movie. It's not terrible, but it's just sort of like washes over you. And I think... It's it's sort of like a better movie than Mission Impossible 2, but it's sort of like a proto-Mission Impossible. And then I realized the way that he carries himself in that movie, mysterious, uh, doesn't really talk that much. You can't know, like He's an action star, but he's just sort of more internalized. That would be the Ethan Hunt that would be in his next movie, Ghost Protocol, because that's what Ethan Hunt is in this. He's missed, He is supposedly grieving a dead wife. So he's, like, mostly... And this would be the Ethan Hunt for the next three movies. He doesn't talk that much. He's mostly stoic. It's like he's given in to the legend of Ethan Hunt. In fact, the beginning of the next movie starts with him walking into a building, and another agent looks at him and goes, are you really him? They've just given in to it. And that's kind of what this is, in terms of how he presented himself. So, Brad Bird had done some of the best animation in in the... 90s, he was a consultant and an executive producer for The Simpsons. He's worked on a lot of things. Started his first film with Iron Giant. Did Incredibles in 2004. Then he did Ratatouille. Then, he is a consultant on Wally and Up and Toy Story 3. Some of the best movies Pixar put out ever. And he takes that time to save his money and put his things together and say, I want to make a live-action film. So this happens that Tom Cruise is looking for somebody, and who does he find? Edgar Wright. What? That's right. They liked Edgar Wright so much, they were like, Edgar Wright, he loved Hot Fuzz. We want you to make our action movie. But he was working on the post-production for Scott Pilgrim vs. the World and couldn't do it. Their next choice, Brad Bird. They liked what he did for Incredibles, and they were like, come do it. So Bradford's like, sure, I'll do it. Great, I'll do it. So he goes in, and he's like, sure, let me see the script. What are we working with? And the guys are like, oh, God, you know, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. This is the set piece we're thinking about. Um, Really just kind of work your way around how you think visually these moments in these cities should work. And he goes, no, sure, I could do that. Um, But where's the script? And they went, okay, um, we don't have one. <laughs> in fact, if you could put in as much input as you want, 
this is the time to do it. We're open. We brought you here to do this. We're not going to tell you what to make. You can have a say in what it is. But they were working on the script and the story well into production. They reshot the beginning when they're in the truck after he, they break him out of prison because that's when they figured out what the story was and they had to go back and talk about where they would go next because originally they didn't know what they were going to do. Just like weird stuff like that. Oh my god. So it's so interesting to me that a guy, Brad Bird, who would work in a precision-based storytelling medium like animation, everything, everything is specifically detailed. You have to. Every frame, you, you have to see it was put in this position where he just had to like go with it and it's still an incredible story every set piece works every character gets their due there's a bunch of callbacks to the other movies it it just works it's this is the proper live action mission impossible movie it's like the best version of what the show could have been it's got all these great things, gadgets and stuff. Like they, they shoot him on the building. It. Wow. It, it, it's incredibly well connected through fantastic set pieces. Just wow. <laughs> it wasn't script. Oh man, that's. It, that's insane to think about. In, like, the context of, like, the whole movie. Because the whole movie moves. It's a movie. It should move. Um, And, oh, man. I can't. (sighs) You just start to notice how he gets around some of the issues. Like, what's an easy way to work on the first scene in your movie so that you, because you don't have any of the other scenes planned out yet, and some of those answers aren't going to come for a while. But I have this first scene. Um, let's take uh, the guy jumping off the building out of the equation and just focus on the prison. Because my guess is that guy and his stuff came later. But I think it was supposed to open with the prison. So how am I going to make this prison scene work? I don't have all the pieces yet, but I kind of know how I want it to go. I know. Let's have a song. The rhythm and the meters and the words of the song will punctuate how the editing is going to go later. If I just get the coverage I need to show the things I need to show, the song is going to guide me later. Boom. There you go. That simple idea just fixed one problem for him. Interesting. I'm thinking back to the prison scene. It's like... Huh. Gosh, th- I cannot think that this movie shot without a script and then reshot afterwards. I just there's a part of me that just cannot fathom that. Like that. Well, there's some things that sort of make sense when you look at it from another angle. Like for example, they don't really have a boss here. There's no guy to there to sort of set exposition, tell them what they need to do, maybe be helping them or a little con- like leery of their plans. There's no like upper figure that they have to go to. The guy they go to, they meet in a car and then is shot immediately in the head. Uh, and then also the villain is mysterious throughout the entire movie. His, his uh, motives com- very easy to understand. He wants nuclear winter and the world to start over. It's just that simple. 
like he's a nuclear extremist. Then his methods are incredibly sneaky. He's just always in the background. Like in the first scene when they're going to the Kremlin, uh, they're walking down the hallway and they're talking. It isn't just the moment where Tom Cruise remembers him carrying the package afterwards. There's a moment right after they get through the card situation where like he has to make sure that the guy's card works. Right after that happens, that's when you first see him. I was like, oh my God, he was there the whole time. He's in the background of the scene, just like in the first movie. In the crumb? Oh, then, yeah, with Michael, Michael Nyquist. Yeah. Yeah. I so noticed that. I was like, the wait, there he is! That's just like the first movie, and I really liked that. But he's also mysterious throughout the thing. All of a sudden, he's his own henchman in the middle one. And then later, he just sort of pops into the middle of their heist and screws it up again. So there's no scene that's his only deal. You don't know anything else about him. You don't need to. We just need to stop him. That cuts a lot of fat in your movie and allows you to just have moments for your characters. And that's what he is. He's a character-driven dude. That's all Incredibles is. It's the family dynamic of superheroes. So to see every single character get arcs in this movie is the exact opposite of the last one. In the last one, he had a team, but nobody had an arc other than him, period. What's the most important scene with Maggie Q and Jonathan Reese Myers? They sit in a car and they talk about a prayer and then it gets cut off because of the action. This movie, everyone has a scene. Everyone has a story. Everyone has an arc. Everyone has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Right. Um, yeah. It's just... I actually like that. Um, like I noticed that was... Oh, man. The, the leap between... The, the last movie and this one. It's like, I think this is the one where they're like, okay. No, it's noticeable. Like, this is the movie where we, like, this is where we get the ball actually rolling. Because, like, at the very last scene, um, when Ethan Hunt is listening to his next mission, he's talking about the syndicate, the Syndicate is the villain of the next movie. So now we're actually going somewhere. Yeah. And like you said, um, at some point, it's like, this is a movie's like, okay, this is a multi-billion dollar, multi-million dollar um, franchise. Let's, like we're a franchise now. Let's act like it. So now they're going somewhere. Um, the, uh, like, every set piece in this movie, I think, is very well crafted. Uh, even, like, the prison scene, the way, he, the way he's motioning to a security camera, he's just like, he's like, let me, he's like, let me through the door. Benji's, like, talking to the monitor, like, no, I'm not gonna let you through. And so, Tom Cruise just sits there, he's just like... I'm not, I'm not moving until you open this door. He's like, fine, and then he starts opening prison doors. <laughs> um, the... Yeah, I... Uh, Benji is great. Yeah. He's not just a guy on the side now. He's like, I, yeah, I feel like they watched the last movie and were like, okay, that was a good pilot. Let's sharpen these ideas. And so now it's not just Luther asking Tom about his marriage or this woman that he's dating. It's a, di a different dynamic with everyone in the team. 
And Luther not being there makes it even more interesting. You think Luther would be a crutch, but I believe he couldn't be there. Uh, he just had scheduling conflicts. But to to see him, to see Jeremy Renner's story unfold throughout the movie, to see Paula Patton's story get helped guided by him, and then just see his sort of fun relationship with Benji. It, it each one has a different dynamic. Everyone you can use differently. He gets to be like a parent teacher to Paula Patton the way that you couldn't see in the third movie. And then you get to see him do the same thing that happened to him in the first movie to Jeremy Renner. Jeremy Renner was put on a mission to hunt a mole. And then the mission goes awry for him, but no one knows that it's a mole hunt. That's exactly what happened to Tom Cruise in the first movie. What happens in the first movie? The guy who is his boss later, uh, his wife... Uh, pretends that her spouse is dead. What happens in this one? Tom Cruise pretends that his spouse is dead. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. The whole like the moment like the moment they land in Dubai and the moment they leave, like everything in Dubai, everything is just like so good and it's like one thing attention to the next and like like first it's like okay we have this amount of time until that do until the door knocks and then they and then they come in so the whole thing is like they have to pretend they have to plan two separate meetings both of them are about the same, like, two of the same meeting in two different places. So then they have to go to the server room and, um, wait, I forgot where they go to the server room. But, um, server room can't be accessed from the inside, right? He has to climb this freaking yeah. thing. He has to scale this freaking thing. And the crazy thing is, the whole time I'm watching it, it's like, he's really scaling the Taj Mahal. That's the real Taj Mahal. That's a real... Several hundred hey, foot hey, drop. Chris, Chris. Yeah, I don't think that's the name of it. It's not. It's, it's not, not the Taj Mahal. I'm wrong. Sorry. Um, it's the Purge Khalifa. Purge Khalifa. Sorry. Jesus, Lord in heaven. <sighs> Sorry, I'm tired. No, no worries. I didn't, know, I didn't know the name either, which is why I didn't try to take a guess at it yet. Purge Khalifa. Purge Khalifa, right? He's really climbing. It's a, that's a real several hundred foot drop. He's really climbing this yeah. thing. It's more than a 700 foot drop, my friend. I said several. Several. Several hundred foot drop. Like. Just. Chris. Chris. It's more like a 1500 foot drop. Yeah, several hundred foot drop. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> um, I, 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 would, I would safely say that he's probably halfway up that building, and that building's almost 3,000 feet tall. Uh, uh, yeah. When he looks down that window before he starts to make the climb, forget about it. Here's my thing. I can't believe they got permission to do that. It's Tom Cruise. Uh, it's Tom Cruise, and the guy who owns that building literally will do anything for publicity. God. This wasn't peak Tom Cruise, but it was... He still was Tom Cruise. He still could do whatever he wanted. This, this was... This was a, like, safety... A Mission Impossible movie for him at this time was a safety net for his career. 
like when he started to feel that his serious acting wasn't working and his like sort of romantic comedy action movie didn't work he needed to fall back on this just for a little bit so he could get, get back up on his feet and eventually he would make a couple of interesting movies until the final last one was uh, the final two being Jack Reacher and Edge of Tomorrow and then that would start to define actually no Edge of Tomorrow is later Jack Reacher would define what the net rogue nation is yeah so, um, so he's really climbing this thing. He's, like, everything goes wrong on his way up this thing. Like, one glove fails, he has to work with one, he gets there, and then he can't cut the window. And then, so he's got to break through it. He can't descend fast enough before the door, before the, the door knocks. So then he, <laughs> he rappels down with his makeshift, um, makeshift cord. And, and he almost missed the window. He just face plants <laughs> the side of the the side of the building, and almost falls. Um, so then the mask machine doesn't work, and Jeremy Renner's like, "This isn't gonna work. This is crazy." Um, and then the mask machine fails. So then they have to. So the all this tension's boiling into this one point. It's like now they have now they have to be themselves and pray that Moreau and um, Hendrix haven't seen each other or don't need or don't know each other. And then it, like that right there is Mission Impossible for me. It's like those little tensions that boil over into a huge like gamble and then it pays off and then every time it gets me. Every single time it gets me. Yeah. It is the first moment, true moment, that happens in the series that McGuire would come back to in Fallout and be like, other characters are like, so this guy just takes chances, right? And people are like, yep, that's Ethan Hunt. He takes a chance and it works out. That's just what he does. And this is the first movie where, like, he does it. He's, like, in the moment and he's like, doesn't matter. We gotta do it. If it doesn't work and we start a fight, then we go from there. But right now, this is our only chance. Do not... Do not screw this up, Renner. We have to try. We have to try. And he's right. He's always right that you have to try. It's it's weird that he always is getting close to it, but that's what I think they're getting close to defining now with like Simon Pegg and Ferguson and Luther is he's learning that he needs to like allow other people to help him. <laughs> yeah. And that happens in this movie too. He, he, like tensions are high, he goes and goes to his contact from the prison. And he needs, like, to step away from his team for a bit. But he also knows he needs them. But it's because someone looks at him and says, you need them. Because in the other movies, Mission Impossible 1 has a small team. It's him and Luther, but that's pretty much it. He can't trust the wife, and he knows that. In the second movie, he just says, screw it, I'm going to go kill this guy and get the cure. In the third movie, he says, screw it, I need to go get my wife. And he does. He just finds out where she is, and he goes to get it, and then he kills the bad guys on his own. Um, this is this in this movie in the last moment for him to press that button for it to work every single person has to do something Benji instead of being a tech guy shoots the guy uh, that he's that's fighting their point man the point man makes the electronic thing work the way the tech guy would and then the woman uh, pulls the lever despite her being wounded which allows for Tom Cruise to press the button and stop the new it's a it, it is a literal team effort for that moment to happen. The exact opposite of every single one. 
just just amazing just just amazing that, I, I think yeah that three minutes that 30 minute centerpiece is as good as the Langley scene and the thing about the first movie is the movie is just three separate Langley scenes it's three it's here's a 30 minute story here's a 30 minute story here's a 30 minute story there's a good way that people could watch that and be like that movie is just too like weirdly paced for me to enjoy it there's no character stuff it's just here's a mission here's a mission here's a mission this one is here's character stuff that leads to this middle centerpiece of amazement that has him scaling the building then then trying to pull the mission off like spies and then an action piece where he runs out into the sandstorm which is awesome then there's a sandstorm any little movie in the middle of the movie and then you get character um uh conclusions in the end of the movie so it starts with character build up then you get the great like story in the middle and then everyone gets their own little ending in the movie including the ending of the movie it's perfect it's, it is perfect the little parking garage bit too like that's insane um and i totally forgot that uh uh michael Nyquist was in this movie like and he played a British guy I'm like oh man I need to see more of his work but I can I can only see him as the the mafia guy from John Wick like <laughs> oh man him with the British accent was actually kind of jarring it's like that, that's not how I see you you have more range than I thought right. I appreciate that he is the dad from John Wick yeah um Gosh, he was so good. Um, I can't think of anything else he's been in off the top of my head. Oh, man, that sucks. Um, but yeah, there was the whole parking garage bit. He took, he takes the briefcase with the nu- with the, like the nuclear uh, launch device, and he's like, he's like several, he's like several stories up from the ground, and then he just falls, just just so Ethan Hunt can't get to it. Like he won't die to cause nu- cause nuclear Armageddon like like that actually like got me like there's nothing this movie won't do there's nothing that Mission Impossible won't do like if the villain knows he can't win if he knows he can't beat um Tom Cruise he's like he just take like he does the last thing you'd imagine he'd do you'd think that he would toss you'd think that he would toss the the briefcase but then he takes a chance and he falls backwards. It's like, there's nothing this franchise won't do. It's truly incredible. I actually think it's one of the best examples of economic writing for a villain. Like, there's a lot of like superhero movies where a villain's like, I want to take over the world. Or this villain's like, I want to get the ether to take over your world or something like that. This movie does that, but then in the end, it doubles down. Like, instead of the, making the person human with vulnerabilities and things that he might want to live for, like, he doesn't have an assistant that he uh, mourns once they're dead. He doesn't have a wife or a family that uh, Tom Cruise can compel with him, like uh, Schwarzenegger and Batman and Robin. He doesn't have a coin that he can flip to make Tommy Lee Jones fall to his death here. This guy has one motive and one motive only. He wants to destroy the world. And the only person who wants to do that would be willing to die for it. And guess what? The guy is willing to die for it. 
and uh, that is a great that's a great thing to double down on a villain you know nothing but that about because what is Tom Cruise gonna do he's gonna is he gonna do what this guy does this guy is dead he's lying on the floor twitching Tom Cruise can't do this and so what does he do he gets in a car and he drives off the edge and instead of flipping upside down like any car would do it just keeps going straight down and he locks out he had to take a chance it's that or nuclear war <laughs> yes um <laughs> whether or not this car flips and I break or crush my skull and break my neck forget that I gotta save the world um gosh what a what a movie Jeez. yeah there's just a lot of like on the whole it's great and then there's a lot of like little great moments like when he says mission accomplished when he presses the button which made me think a lot of things a the the senator before he gets shot in the head says in a very serious specific way your mission if you choose to accept it like they really put weight on that phrase and it is because he's the only one that's capable of stopping this and saving the world, like saving the world. So that that way that he says it, by the way, I love Talon Wickinson. I think at this point he had just been nominated or was going to win an Oscar that year. No, no, he was going to be nominated in 2008. But I love Tom Wilkinson. Um, and he says it in that interesting way. It's always stuck with me. And then as I watched him do the Mission Impossible thing this time, or the Mission Accomplice thing this time, I forgot about it as a funny moment that Luther talks about later, but then I, like, think about how, how Ethan Hunt probably views himself and how corny he is, and I think he took that sentence before he died the exact same way I did. He took it to heart. Like, that was the, that was the real message that self-destructed in front of him, and now he was saying mission accomplished. And then I was like, is, does that really seem like Ethan Hunt and then it took me back to when he was on the helicopter and he goes, red light, green light, and I still laugh at that. <laughs> red light! Red light! He's corny. He's a corny dude. In the second movie, he's too cool to say anything. And in the third movie, the guy gets hit by a car. He doesn't even get a chance. And he has a thing in his head, so he can't really quip at that moment. But in this movie, this was like his quip, and it is corny, but it works. And I love that in the end of the day, Luther is like, you said that, and you're corny. Like, that's great. It's a mini little arc in this movie that shouldn't exist because the movie was just getting written at the time. But that's not the first time that's happened. Casablanca is one of the greatest movies ever made, and that's like renowned for being a movie that was like rewritten on the spot every single day. It's one of the greatest scripts ever. But like they were writing that stuff within weeks of shooting it. Yeah, just <clears throat> oh wow. Um. Man, what else can I say? It's just... It's just very well crafted and done. And... Um, it, would only, it, it only gets bigger from here. I don't know how... Like, it's amazing they got... Like, they managed to up the ante from a sandstorm. Um, but, like... Yeah, I agree. I do. It's just, like... Like, that whole... T I'm seriously, that whole Burj Khalifa scene, like, start to finish, is just like... They... I'm sorry, I have to go back to that. They have the meeting. They have the meetings. It works out. They don't know each other. And then everything goes smoothly until Moreau sees the lens in Jeremy Renner's eyes. And then everything goes astray. Then 
Um, Paula Patton kicks her off a kicks her off kicks her out the window, and <laughs> it's like and then Hendrix makes a break for it. The, then the Russian cops come. They <laughs> intercepted him, <laughs> and then he breaks off from them. And the next thing you know, sandstorm. Just sandstorm. Why not? Great. It's pre Mad Max. I love it. It's pre Mad Max. It's great. Um, just um, so I have a few more things that I wanted to okay ask you about. What, what did you think about Paula Patton and Jeremy Renner? Because Jeremy Renner was hired specifically to take over Tom Cruise in the series, and Paula Patton just hadn't had a chance like this ever. Right, it's, um... In the context of this movie, I think that, um... I think... Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm not thinking... I'm not thinking... I thought that... I thought um, Paula Patton's uh, character was going to go in one direction where I thought she can't help but kill to kill the bad guys. Like, that's her instinct. Like, she leaves a mess. Um, yeah. I thought that was the direction they were going to go. But then there was the airplane ride to India, and I'm like, oh, wait a minute, I thought wrong. Like, like I was... Th- like, the whole thing, I had, I had the wrong idea the whole time. So... And I'm like, and then they're, jeez. So, like, and then Jeremy Renner. Man, Jeremy, I have to remind myself that Jeremy Renner is over 40. Because he does not look it. He does not look like he's over 40. He That dude is ageless. Um, have you seen her locker? Yes. It was a very long time ago. But, yes, I have seen it. And the context to that is... No, no, I'm just... I think that's one of his best roles. You like military movies, like The Kingdom and stuff like that. I was just wondering... Also, in terms of something that I would want to put on the list as well. Okay, yeah. Um, Didn't that win Best Picture? It did win Best Picture. I'm going to go more in-depth into what happened with Jeremy Reiner next time, because his character takes a huge shift next time. But also, I, I, I think... He, he continues to surprise me because sometimes I like when he overacts and like acts and sometimes I don't and sometimes I think he's his stoicism is better and sometimes I don't like it, it depends on who he's working with and what he's working with uh, that elevates what he's doing like I love him in the Marvel movies I think he's fine but um, he kind of I don't know he just kind of doesn't work in some other ones. I like him in the town, but I don't like him when he's screaming up to the Hulk in Endgame after Black Widow died. I don't think that works. Hmm. I, I think my mom... I'm interested to see what it does. I think my mom got Endgame on the Voodoo account. I'll have to check, but I think if we watch Endgame. Um, you should have seen me react. Like, like I was in front of, I was in front of people. I'm like... <gasps> Endgame's on digital! Ah! <laughs> um, but yeah, I think... I think they were... I think they were pretty good. I haven't like I haven't really seen Jeremy Renner outside of Hawkeye often. Did you see Boy Legacy? 
Wait, what movie? Born Legacy. Born Legacy. Right. I have. Guess when that came out. But my God, that movie is kind of forgettable. Guess that. Guess what came out the exact same year as this movie? Born Legacy. Legacy. Exactly. In 2006, after he had won, after Hurt Locker won, and I believe he won for the Hurt Locker, was Jeremy Renner is going to be a star, guys. And then he does The Town, and that's the thing I think he won for. But regardless, uh, he got nominated for two Oscars. The Hurt Locker came out. He was a big deal. He was rising up, and they put him in this and Born Legacy and Marvel uh, Avengers just a little bit later. So he was he well, was prepped for he was in four before the uh, the same year as this too, I believe. Oh yeah, Thor. There you go. So he was already starting to like step into Marvel. So he had three series that he had to choose from. The Bourne series didn't work out because I agree that movie doesn't work. Uh, this series didn't work out, and I don't know whether that's because Tom Cruise wanted to keep going and Jeremy Renner was just pushed out, or whether they just thought Renner wasn't going to work or something behind the scenes yet, I don't know. I can't wait to look into 5 and see what happened. It may just be that Marvel took up all his time, but I, I don't know well, yet. Well, he, he was literally in at Marvel for, like, a day shooting. He he was just kind of there. He he was specifically in the scene uh, after... Was trying to get his hammer. What? When he was trying to get his hammer? Yeah, that's the only scene he's in... And he shot that in one night, if I remember reading correctly. He was just yes, for a night shooting. What? What I'm, what I'm saying is he was putting his fingers in a bunch of pies, hoping that he that they would turn into franchises that he could get into. Yeah. He had three. One was going to continue without him. One did not continue, period. And then, like, Marvel just kept going. And he's been in and out of that, sometimes bigger, sometimes smaller, and now he's got a show with him. So I'm wondering, did he choose to go the Marvel route and just open up his schedule to whatever they need him for to shoot the latter half of, like, Civil War, Infinity War, and Endgame? Or did Mission Impossible push him out because Tom Cruise just didn't want to leave the series? Because I think Rebecca Ferguson is another replacement, just female. And it it seems like it's turning into Ethan Hunt and Ferguson together rather than Ferguson taking over. I just don't think he feels like leaving this series yet if they've got two more down the path. Oh, man. Which leads to my last theory, and that is the theory of people in this series that I feel like there's a bit of a curse on supporting actors in this series. <laughs> <laughs> She had her own show, Femdekita, for a long time, but she hasn't risen above that and had the career she had back then. Jonathan Reese Myers, same thing. He had a couple of shows, and I believe he's doing another one now, but he's never risen above to the point where he could have been a Tom Cruise. Uh, Jeremy Reader's been in Marvel, but he just hasn't lived up in any other series. Paula Patton has had chances, but like she, they've never, they keep putting her, putting her in bad stuff. Either she's making bad choices or she's just like taking chances that don't work. But I feel very bad because I like Paula Patton in this. I actually think, I think she's very pretty. But um, what was the other one? 
that's uh, John Renault. John Renault. He was John Renault before that happened. And then, like the entire team from the first movie, a lot of them were stars when it happened, but they really haven't gone on to have bigger, better careers in America. I think there's a little bit of a curse. Hmm, John Voight. I also want to point out that uh, the guy who plays Luther is also the same actress who ended up in Trolls too. Who? Luther uh, was a actor. Excuse me. No, yeah, Luther's wife was a Trolls too. That. Oh, tro- yes, we talked about this. How big like, Rami is married to Deborah Reed, who played the right. main villain in Trolls Two, I believe. Right. No, I, yeah, we talked about that for Trolls Two. I remember that. Yes. Can we so please? Can we please what? make? Can we please somehow make it that Trolls Two is canon in the Mission Impossible universe? Can we it make that spider. happen? I mean, you, you got to remember though, like that that family is probably just making all their money based on Ving's entire career, not necessarily hers. Because I don't think the Trolls Two community is gonna cough up money for her to live. Well, she does. She does other things. Then, like that acting was when she first started, but she's still in the business and other uh, ideas. That's how Ving made her met her later. Yes, I mean she she it sure, seems, she's like, it seems like she hasn't done anything in almost ten years. Uh, she seems fun. She, she doesn't seems... need to do anything. She's swimming in that trolls two money. But, right? She is. No, she is. she's got conventions. She moved temporarily into doing being a makeup artist on Dumb and Dumber, and then since then she's kind of just moved around and did a. She's done a little bit of dock work, not too much, and then kind of just lived her life as husband as the wife to her husband. Uh, so how did you? Okay, so. Chris, how did you think, what did you think about Ethan's story here? About him supposedly grieving for his wife, uh, having killed a bunch of people and going to prison for it, and then uh, turning out that it was all just that they aren't married anymore. Like, for me, I knew that they weren't married married anymore. Because if there's one takeaway I had from the last viewing before today was that I knew how this ended and the way they were vague about it I'm like they mean divorce right cause I thought when Benji said something to Paula Patton I'm like oh I thought that was just the one I was like oh they must have gotten divorced then they came back to it and it was like then there was the then there was like the whole like the the two uh, the six the six Slovakians killed, um, and then I'm like wait are they insinuating that it was Ethan that it was Ethan that killed him and then it was and then I'm like wait wait so they just faked her death and so after that. Then I was like, no, hang on a second. So I thought, wait, she's, they faked her death. And I'm just like, wait, so she's dead, but not. So the people that she knew 
in three that all came to their party they all think she's dead but she's not and oh my gosh it just felt weird I just thought like the whole time I'm like wait everybody knows they're divorced right like no they think she's dead oh okay sure <laughs> okay I'm just it kind of when I think about it now I just kind of feels unnecessary I feel like it just could have been a one off but then if one then if you didn't do it you wouldn't have Jer Jeremy Renner's arc Huh. I guess then So this is this is why I find the arc in three super interesting. I think he wanted to end the series on three. I think he wanted to end with Ethan going off and maybe he would come back to it later, but not not unless he needed to. And he kinda needed to after three. Um so I think this was him being the leader of the team, and then in the next movie, Renner would take over. I think that was the intent, but things get interesting when we get to the next movie. Yeah. The, the, the question is, what was the intent between 3 and 4? Because J.J. Abrams obviously came in to say, I'm going to help you, Tom Cruise, fix your image. We're going to make a great-looking action movie. It's going to be fun. We're going to fix the series, and we're going to make you look great. Uh, we're going to remind people why you were great in the 90s. And it's a very 90s kind of Tom Cruise performance. Uh, but because he was retired and he was a teacher and now he's married, I mean, either the wife joins the team or she stays on the side and is cool with everything. Or uh, I don't know. Like, I don't think they were really... It, it, it just begs the question, what was their intent after three? Was it to end it? and maybe not ever come back unless they needed to, or was it to continue on? What was what was J.J. Abrams' goal? Because he continues to produce here. He was supposed to make this movie, but he decided to make Super 8 instead. Hmm. So I'm not sure what they're doing. They, they have to palate cleanse this in Fallout by having the wife come back and say, no, we, we got back together. Well, no, we tried to work things out, but just like he... I can't be the person who stays at home and worries why he saves the world. I just want him to go save the world. And it makes sense, but it took two movies for you to get there. So what was their decision-making here? What were they trying to do here? It's That's a good question. Because, like... I think... I, th I think it's Tom Cruise thought that outside of this, or he needed a safety net to come back to because he wants to keep going. So he decided, okay, I'm going to reboot, but not exactly. So... I think they just stopped rebooted the franchise, honestly. <sighs> I don't think that? 3 is a reboot. I feel like 
this movie is kind of a soft reboot of the franchise a little bit. Not really. I I think that's what three is, but I also think three is. I think it's a reboot of the series because number two had went so far off. I think this is a sharper version of the third movie. So the third movie became a pilot, which is ironic because J.J. Abrams was a TV director. Honestly, when you compare the look, this was my final question for you, Chris. Now that you've watched this one again, which one do you think is better, three or four? Four. It just, like, it just, I agree. It highlights... The, it highlights that three just isn't shot well, I think. So wait, this was Brad Bird's first, like, like live, live action, action film, right? Yeah. Well, that's a heck of a debut. Um, I think they're both respectable debuts. I think it's even more interesting because I'm my guess is that J.J. Abrams was brought in at the time that they didn't know what they were doing. They were like, we got to just start from scratch here. So that's where he was. Like, Brad Bird came in and he's like, I like the last one. Like, where are you going to go with it? And they're like, yeah, you know, we're going to put this, this, and he's going to do this. And he's like, sure, but what's the story? And they're like, do you have one? Yeah, just... It just makes it even more interesting when you look at Tomorrowland, which I think is an incredibly boring movie. Was his experience on this movie so haphazard, but still got the best out of him, that when it came to Tomorrowland, he was like, I'm going to do everything my way, it's going to be controlled, it's going to be specific, and it made everything kind of feel wooden. Mm. Yeah, just... But yeah, it's, um... Yeah, I think it's, uh... Um, I honestly think it's, uh, four is better because it's shot better. I think, um, I think Brad Bird became a little more adaptable and just like understood that, understood what he was getting into, saw three and was like, okay, we should fix this and this and this and this. From a technical standpoint, I think JJ, with his first like big live action debut, just wanted to like, um, just wanted to like shoot it and be like, I feel like it was more of like, I made this, I can make a Hollywood movie, and that's it. And I think it was more of the time. I think he wanted to be more similar to the time. And just, um, I think you just wanted to adapt more to the, the times and not feel like it's out of place or just like, he didn't want to do a callback or a, um, he didn't want to like, I think he just wanted to make it and not like, rock the, not like, do anything crazy. Cause like, like you said, he's, in the end, he's safe. Um... I think that, um, I just think they learned from their mistakes from 4, and that's really what it came down to. They learned, yeah, they learned their mistakes from 3, 
And I, th- I think that's honestly what it came down to from a technical standpoint. They just said, okay, this isn't very... This is, like, at times incomprehensible, and there's too many close-ups. Let's fix that. And that's what they did. Um, then Brad Bird... Um, did his own style, uh, did his own thing with it. Um, but yeah, I really think that's what it, come, it comes down to. They just learn from their mistakes. That after after hearing this story, it makes me appreciate what J.J. Abrams did so much more because he came in as a producer and was like, "Here's all the things I want you to change and you should change. Here's how you should represent Tom Cruise. Here's this. Here's the set pieces." And then he did it. He directed it himself, having not made a movie before. It makes me respect what he did all the more because Brad Bird obviously was somebody who understood a frame and how to use a frame and how to utilize imagery really well because he'd worked in animation for so long J.J. Abrams was a character driven TV guy week for week have to get the product out and he just wasn't there as an imagist yet but honestly he got there pretty pretty freaking fast so I am I, I am still very impressed if not more so for what he did for the third movie, but I, I agree. This 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 film is a better version of three, and just like in I think the Fast and Furious series, the the fifth movie is when things really started to get going. But in this case, the fourth one, like this is the movie where they're like, okay, we we have the formula, we just got to make it better, and then they did, and then I think Rogue Nation and Fallout are amazing. They're both. They're both fantastic. It's only going to get better from here. Yep. Even better. Um, I still think Fallout's my favorite. Um, we'll see with Rogue Nation. I really liked Rogue Nation too. Yeah. Yeah. Rogue Nation's opera scene is great. Um, but yeah. So. All right. Let's grade this sucker. Um. Oh man, Whew. this is tough. Um, a minus. Yeah, there's very few things that I don't think work here. There's a couple of visual moments that don't work, like when the car crash happens in the dust storm, when he walks to the car and looks around it, and then he sees the villain running away. He totally would have seen the villain running away. If anything much more obviously because of how close he would have been. He, he would have heard him, he would have seen him, just without a doubt. And then there's a couple moments in the end, just little things like that, like they try to get around, but you can't really help. And that's the, my favorite thing about it. There's very little I don't like about this and very little that I want to criticize, despite if I wanted to, I could. I, I just think it's... I'm debating between A- minus and A- because I don't think Rogue Nation, the uh, Rogue Nation and Fallout are going to have to make arguments for A pluses. I don't think either one of them are, but they would have to make the argument for it. I think A's closer for them, but I feel like I feel, I feel like maybe this is yeah. I think it's an A minus. I think you're right. I think it's an A minus. I may change it when Rogue Nation comes around. Fallout's the tipping point of everything. I have a few 
small problems with Fallout that I want to see if they if they come back again. But yeah, I think Rogue Nation might be a five, where this is a. I may switch them, but I think this is an A minus. Zach, wake up and grade it. Um, probably an A minus, maybe a B plus. But I, I like have that for like other reasons, not necessarily that it's a bad movie though, which I very much explained to Alex earlier. What were they? The bad date thing. Oh yes, yeah. That that's like a personal thing. That has nothing to do personally with the movie. No, it's universal in that it happens to everyone, but the, this is one of those movies where it was connected to a personal experience that didn't. Uh, you didn't think about. Yeah. Yeah. I have, I have that sometimes with people and celebrities. There's someone I dated once who looked like an actress named Amy Smart, and I couldn't watch anything with that actress in it for the longest time. And then I saw her again in something recently, and I was like, oh, Amy Smart, you're great. I wish... I wish I wasn't a, a jerk from before. You're 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 great. I'm gonna watch your stuff again. Yeah. I mean, and like this movie's a lot of fun. Don't get me wrong. And like the fact that this movie like opening has Josh Holloway in it like helps a bit. But like overall, it's just like it's a good movie. I just don't personally enjoy like putting myself through it. <laughs> um. Yeah, I do like that it sticks with the whole. Uh, we're going to put somebody in the beginning that you recognize and then and kill them. The thing that they've done for the last three movies. <laughs> yeah, that is true. They did I don't it remember with... if they do that in... Who did they do it with in two? I don't think they do. No, they didn't Sorry. do it in two, did they? Let's see, in two... I don't um, remember. I, I bet if I looked it up, the guy who created Chimera is probably a famous actor. I mean, even around this time, this movie came out, what, 2011? So, like, Lost had been done for about a year by the time this came out. I mean, I don't know if I'd say Josh Holloway was, like, that famous still at the time. Like, Lost had been kind of rolling. That's that's why I think the role's perfect, because I think the role was buffed up for... I think it was just a thing that was in the background of Paula Patton's life. It was what was driving her character. But then they needed something to push the plot even further, so they actually decided to shoot those scenes, and then they just went with the whole, well, if he's going to, you know, we're going to shoot these scenes, let's just, you know, put somebody that someone's going to recognize. You can go around and do the media circuit trend whenever all the other actors are, and throw people off, because we're not going to ask the villain to do it, he's not really a villain, and we want to keep him mysterious. Because he would have to answer questions about what the villain wants, and it's super simple, he just wants to kill the world. Yeah. He, to me, was a last-minute entry, and they wanted someone familiar and someone that we all wanted to see in stuff. We all wanted to see him get a chance. Yeah. And instead, he ended up on that last ship show, or whatever. Yeah, I mean... Unfortunately, Josh Holloway has kind of done nothing with himself. Which is unfortunate, because I think he's a great, great actor, and... You know, he ended up on Colony for all those years to for that just to go. That's what he did after this. God. Yeah, he did. I was yeah, after Lost, and that didn't really go anywhere. 
I think he kind of went there, though, because it was made by Carlton Cuse and not necessarily because, like, he wanted to do something interesting. <laughs> mm. So, what are we doing after uh, Fallout? Uh, back to the same formula. Good, bad, good, bad. Okay, good. Got it. That's what we're doing. Um, but yeah, so... Here comes Big Bad McQuarrie. Oh, I'm so ready. Oh, I'm so ready. Oh, man. Ever since the way of the gun. Ever since the way of the gun, we've been waiting for this day. Um. So. Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. For the, I think, is this the first time we've ever, all three of us, universally agreed on a grade? I think so, yes. And I can't remember a time where we did. I think it was a bad moment where we all agreed it failed. Yeah, that's true. I, I've, I've gone back and, and listened to a couple of them with, with my dad, and it turns out I'm a little bit more uh, generous with my bad movie scores than Chris is. Yes, you are. Straight, straight up Fs. And I have a lot of, like, good bad skills. I always feel like I take the middle of the road, but... You do. Yeah, you do. <laughs> you play both sides. It's easy to be that way, though. True. Um. So yeah, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol is done. Now we get Macquarie, and I'm so ready. Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Oh man, I can't wait. Oh man. I'm excited as well. So, there you go, everybody. And then after, and then we're going to get to Fallout. Oh, man, I can't I really want to watch Fallout again. Woo, baby. Um, so, there you go, everybody. Yeah, we're gonna, we are going to go into Rogue Nation next time. So, uh, be sure to hit us up with that. All right, everybody. Everybody have a good day. Say goodbye, guys. Bye-bye. Bar-bar. This podcast was self-destruct in five seconds.